Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, this is David Armstrong. I'm going to be taking the month of January off to work on my upcoming book, but in the meantime, I'll be sharing some of my favorite episodes from the past that you may have missed or may enjoy hearing again. Thank you so much for listening to Broadway Nation, and I especially want to thank our patron club members, including our newest members, John Schroeder and Alan Brody, whose generous support helps to make this podcast possible. If you would like to help support the creation of Broadway Nation, I'll have information at the end of the episode about how you too can become a patron. Now, here's a specially selected Encore episode. See you in February. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode Inside the Creation of Follies. My guest this week is Ted Chapin, whose captivating 2003 book, Everything Was Possible, The Birth of the Musical Follies, has recently been reissued in a revised and updated edition. Of course, the expression, I just couldn't put that book down, is a cliché. But in this case, it has been absolutely true, both when I first read it back when it was originally released, and again just a few weeks ago when I had the great pleasure of diving into it all over again. As you may know, this book is based on Ted's first-hand experience as the production assistant on the original Broadway production of Stephen Sondheim, Hal Prince, and James Goldman's landmark musical, Follies. Last week, during my conversation with Peter Felicia, he talked about his dream of wanting to go back in time and be a fly on the wall to witness the inner workings of various legendary musicals as they were being put together. Ted's book allows us to do exactly that, 
This book makes us feel like we are right there in the thick of it during Folly's rehearsal period in New York and in Boston during its out-of-town tryouts, many trials and tribulations. But writing this book was only a sideline for Ted. In his day job for 40 years, he served as the president of the Rodgers and Hammerstein organization, a role that he was personally chosen by the Rodgers and Hammerstein families to take on. In addition, Ted was the co-founder of the acclaimed Encore series at New York City Center, and he currently serves on the boards of City Center, the Kurt Weill Foundation, and the American Theatre Wing. It's always a delight to speak with Ted Chapin, most especially in regard to his one-of-a-kind experience of being in the rooms where follies happened. Here we go. Welcome, Ted Chapin, to Broadway Nation. It's such a thrill to have you here to talk about what I think may be the absolute best book about the making of a Broadway show. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here, David, as always. And of course, the reason you're here is the book is being re-released. In a revised edition, for which I wrote a new afterward. So what was that like now to look back almost two decades from when you wrote the book and more than 50 years from when the show opened and when you, as a 20-year-old, had this experience of being able to watch the show go together and almost not go together? Well, when Applause said they would be interested in doing a revised edition, they basically said a new forward or a new afterward. And since the forward was written by Frank Rich, I don't think I should mess around with that. So I said, let me do an afterward and let me try to catch up with Follies since 2003 when the book came out. It was interesting because obviously I didn't want it to be exhaustive, but there were enough checkpoints in the show's history, including it becoming more of a real event than I think it had been in 2003. So I found that there was enough to talk about and just fill in a few little gaps, some of which I had decided not to put in the original book. When you wrote the book, Follies was not the legendary show that it has become since then. That's true. That's true. I think Sondheim was enough of a figure that Knopf was intrigued by the book. I mean, they bought it very quickly, which I knew at the time was not the way books usually get published. And Bob Gottlieb, the sort of famous editor, and he was head of Knopf for a while, he went for it. And my agent, smart woman that she was, said, he's got to go for this book. It's right up his alley. And it turned out that it was. Again, without having had any experience of book writing or editing, I knew I was dealing with the best. And it was a little humbling. But at the same time, I just, you know, crashed on through and waited for his commentary, which was actually fascinating. Two things I remember him saying very clearly. One was, don't be a pundit, because there was one paragraph where I don't know what even what it was, but he said, you're now pontificating. That's not what this book is about. This book is telling a story about how a musical comes together. That's what you should think about at all times. And then in my relationship with Yvonne DiCarlo, he said, don't be coy. If you had an affair with her, tell us. If you didn't, tell us. And so I thought, okay, well, I will be honest enough to say that, yes, I squired her around, and yes, I drove her here and there, and yes, I had dinner with her, but that's as far as it went. It would have been a juicier book if you just made up a few things. It could have been, because I think I said in the book, you know, she was a movie star. She had a husband. She had two boys and a gun collection. And something about all of that flashed danger to me. Probably very wise. Also, you know, she carried herself like an old-fashioned movie star. Mm -hmm. And those people are sort of bigger than life. And they like to be recognized. And they like to go to places where they can be seen. I grew up, my parents 
Americans had people of note in their living room all the time, but not quite like that. Yeah, that MGM style of movie star. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, those great pictures of the first day of rehearsal where she's in a fur coat and there's <laughs> Alexa Smith in what looks like a prim and proper suit. There's the difference between the two ladies. When you talk about the difference between the Hollywood people and the theater people that came together in the show. It really was such an interesting, odd collection of people from not only Hollywood and Broadway, but from television. Dorothy Collins was most known for Your Hit Parade, which is a television show. Some of the older people, Mary McCarty had been Miss Liberty on Broadway, but hadn't, I think, been on Broadway in many years. She did clubs. She had her own club at that point called Mary Mary. Ethel Chate hadn't been around for years. Joanna Merlin, casting director, was quite brilliant at finding these odd ducks. Some of them fit right into songs that Sondheim had written, but others, you know, Fifi Dorsey, he had started a French song called Hello Doughboy, and when he saw Fifi, he thought, no, 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 there's a better song for her. Hence, Ah, Paris. He king as rich Charles New Orleans jazz. Paris, Beirut, the sunshine, that's all he does. Paris, Constantinople, a Turkish bass. And Athens, that lovely table. Cars, but may have a spot. But for ooh la la, you come with me. Cars, but is where you cure after you have toured. Remind us what made this book possible. What was the experience you had that you were able to draw on to write this, I think, incredible book? Well, as a musical theater enthusiast of my age, when I saw Company, there were so many things about Company that I found so dazzling. It was contemporary. It looked contemporary. It felt contemporary. The music was not standard Broadway, but it also wasn't hair. It wasn't pop music. It was somewhere in between, but it felt very of the moment. And it didn't really have a plot, but it didn't matter because the characters were all interesting and all the little scenes of the married folk. I just thought they were all kind of intriguing. I just thought it was wonderful. I thought Michael Bennett's work was staggering the way he used that set. So I just thought, I love what they're doing and I want to be close to this. Somehow, whatever I end up doing with my life, I want to be around this kind of show and these kind of people. And I knew that Follies was going into rehearsal the following January. I was in college at a time when you could pretty much get away with anything, although it took a little work. But I said to the college, I have an opportunity, which I was trying to get at the same time, to observe the creation of a new original American musical. And it's one of our art forms, and I have the opportunity, and I want to take it, and I will write you a report, and you give me credit for an independent study. And where were you going to college, and what were you studying? I was going to Connecticut College, which had been Connecticut College for Women, and 36 of us turned it co-ed. So there were not a lot of men and a lot of women. So it was an institution in a state of flux. And the ladies who had run that place, you know, sort of had pity pat heart for the boys who would come. The registrar was a pal of mine. So I could go to her and say, how do I do this? Because I really want to do this. At the same time, because I had met Hal Prince and actually Michael Bennett as well on a program. I'd met Hal Prince before, but a program at the O'Neill Center called the National Theater Institute. I worked both sides. I wrote a letter to Hal. The college is enthusiastic about my watching the creation of a new American musical. So both sides agreed. So I said, I'll observe, then I'll write you a report. 
the first day of rehearsal I got there, they said, oh, good, can you go get coffee? And I think I say in the book, at first I was disappointed. I thought, oh, I've done this before. I've been a gopher. I've gotten everybody's coffee. But that's not what I thought this was going to be. Then it didn't take me long to realize, wait a minute, that actually gives me a position, a reason to be here more than just sitting in the corner and looking. So I was very pleased to become the gopher, although I did go home every night and write out what I'd seen happening that day in rehearsal. So you kept a diary every day of what happened. I went home every day, sat at the electric typewriter and just wrote out what I remembered happening that day. I also had a spiral-bound notebook in which I wrote little things as well, which I would refer to when I went home. But I did that religiously. I did a report for the college. Uh, I passed. The fact that years later, the opportunity was put forward to me to examine writing it as a book. If I didn't have those pages, I couldn't have done it. There's no way I could have written the book as I opened those pages again and started to look at them, and also what I'd written for college, and there are some things that are very similar between the two. There's no reason to sort of rethink the whole thing. So you were able to draw on some of the actual prose that you wrote for the yeah. college paper when you wrote the book. I remember thinking about writing Boston when we got to Boston and thinking to myself, you know, I don't really like journals that are written day by day. Monday it was sunny. I picked the petunias. But something in me thought, oh, wait a minute, when we get to Boston— then it might make sense to do a chronicle day by day since each day brought something different. And then I picked up my college paper and that's exactly what I had done in college. So I thought, oh, the same mind thought the same way 30 years apart. As you said, being a gopher gave you access to situations, rooms, right. events that you would not have had if you had just been an observer. Exactly. And I got to go around town picking up manuscripts from Sondheim and delivering them to the copyist and going to Jonathan Tunick's house and picking up score pages and all that stuff. And just keeping an ear open, not only in the rehearsal room, but in the stage manager's office and the corridors, people were walking back and forth and I'd hear things and I think, oh, that's good. That's good. I'd jot it down or I'd remember it. This made you an official member of the company, which probably made people more willing to share gossip with you than they might have if you had just been an observer from the outside. Except for two people who didn't trust me. Fred Kelly, who was in the ensemble, I think he actually played Mary McCarty's husband, who was Gene Kelly's brother. I think twice he said to me, uh, are you writing things down for that book? And it's like, what do you mean, what book? What are you talking about? And I think Justine Johnston, who was the equity deputy, looked askance at me a couple of times. When I wrote the book, I do say in the beginning, as a slight apology, I said, I never intended to write this as a book, so I don't want people to think that I'm being voyeuristic. That said, I think I chronicled a remarkable piece of theatrical history, and I hope people will indulge me in telling the story I didn't edit a lot. I think everybody in the book, at some point, there's something I quoted them saying, which probably looking back, they wouldn't love that it was quoted. A couple of them still alive got to tell me that and asked me to change a couple things. But for the most part, I wanted to be as honest as possible. And also, I think it was very important is I didn't have any scores to settle. There was nobody I was out to get. I tried to be as honest as I could possibly be to everybody involved in that. And just as you know so well, the mere act of mounting a musical, especially if it's new, is so complicated and so nuanced and involves so many people. And each individual person has his, her, or their own arc what they'll learn fast, what they'll learn slow, what they're resistant to, what they love, other members of the company who they will rely on or like or want to work with or don't want to work with. It's so complicated. So to try to be an observer that was looking at everything without making judgment calls was 
part of the fun, frankly. Well, and indeed, the creators of this show, Sondheim and Prince and Michael Bennett, took on a level of challenge that I think is beyond almost any other show because of the diverse ages involved in the show. Basically, there are three generations. No matter how old you are, you will have some reaction to either the young people who are the ghost figures, the middle-aged people who are at the party, or the old people who come to the party and reenact their moments in the follies. I obviously identified with the youth when I was a gopher. And then when I started to write the book, those middle-aged people, it's like, oh, wait a minute. I see what's going on there. Yeah, it was. It's three generations and a lot of diverse skill sets and diverse abilities to learn things. You know, a lot of the older folk were nervous about learning their lines. I think I described Fifi Dorsey, who was just sort of a nervous wreck from beginning to end. And I remember we had rehearsed on the set in the studio in the Bronx where it was being constructed. And at the very front of the stage, you know, you would walk down to the front of the stage if a number was staged there. And it was like six inches off to the floor of the shop. Bring the set to the Colonial Theater in Boston. You go to that same moment and there's a 10 foot drop into the orchestra pit. And people like Fifi Dorsey were absolutely panicked by that. They learned and she always tried to move a little upstage as long as she was by herself. Right. <laughs> she didn't want any competition. But yeah, it was tricky. It was tricky. But the out of town process, which was so important to so many important musicals in the era where there were more and more of them every year, I don't know that it can be replicated. It was well used by Hal Prince as well. And the four weeks that that show was in Boston, an amazing number of changes were made. Not the basic core of the show, but things were shifted around. Songs were cut. Dialogue was changed. Hal Prince as a producer had like a laser view of what Out of Town was all about. And he was not going to get blown off course. And Sondheim knew this. Don't you quote him as saying, when we get out of town, you'll see what Hal's going to do? Yep. Yep, because he'd been there before and he knew it. Yeah. And sometimes one of the amazing things about it is how late so many of the songs come to the process. He has not finished the show when they finish rehearsals in New York. I believe there are eight songs that he wrote from the first day of rehearsal till the first preview in New York. Because I had made a cassette of him playing the score for the company the first day of rehearsal surreptitiously with my little tape recorder. But I gave him a copy of the tape when I started the book. And his comment afterwards was, oh, my God, that's all I had. Um, And I said, yeah, you were working hard. I mean, you know, he always said he was a procrastinator until he had to write. Also, he said, and I think it's very true for Follies, that he was always inspired by the performers that he knew were going to introduce his songs. So he could write, I'm still here, knowing that Yvonne DiCarlo was going to do it. And even Uptown, Downtown, then Lucy and Jesse for Alexis Smith, that kind of stuff. But the pressure that that put on everybody only adds to the drama of this story because it's a race to the finish in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And my recollection, I worked on other shows where performers were panicked about learning new material. But my recollection of Follies was everybody was sort of in it to win it, but also in it to do what they were told to do. And if they had to learn a new song, or if they had to learn a new bunch of dialogue or shift the order. Everybody was focused on doing it. Yvonne went up on her lyrics a lot, but I'm Still Here has a lot of lyrics and they rattle out. I give her some sympathy for having to you know, learn all that stuff. Well, let's talk about those lyrics because one of the most thrilling parts of the book is when you are the first person right. to transcribe those lyrics. Maybe the second person other than Sondheim even to see them, to yeah. know what they were. Talk a little bit about how that happened. Well, it was, it was great. Before Folly's 
opened in Boston, the decision had been made to replace Can That Boy Foxtrot for Yvonne DiCarlo. So actually opening night, she sang Can That Boy Foxtrot. And, you know, nobody knew this, but the decision was made that that song was going to go. So then Sondheim went off for a couple of days and, you know, we sort of knew he was hard at work. And then rumors started to go around the company that he had a song for Yvonne and came in and played it for Hal and Michael Bennett, probably played it for Yvonne as well. And then his manuscript was handed to me and up the five flights to the stage manager's office in the red IBM electric typewriter. You know, his manuscript was on my left and I was typing away just with these incredible images. And actually, when I got to that point in the book, I thought I really need to write this as a scene because I remember feeling it and it was so dramatic. I just kept thinking, my God, where did he pull up all these references? I've slept in shanties, guests off the WPA. But I'm here I danced in my scanties Three bucks a night was the pay But I'm here I've stood on bread lines With the best Watched while the headlines Did the rest In the depression Was I depressed Nowhere near I met a big financier and I'm here you know and of course they were all so tidy and I still have a copy of that first lyric because what I used to do is I figured out that I could fit nine carbon copies in and I could keep copy like five, which was strong enough that I could type it again if I needed to, if they needed more copies, because Xerox was just beginning. The machines were very slow. Carbon was actually a faster way to get things done. So for the young people listening, let's drill into that just a little bit. This is at the very beginning of the copy machine. Right. Exactly. So you were doing this almost entirely by hand, by, by hand. hand. Right. Typewriters with carbon copy, right. which I, is even hard to explain to young people. Exactly, today. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And between that and the way scripts were mimeographed, that's another thing in the book. That was the way all Broadway scripts were done. And I suddenly thought, oh, you know what? The younger generation is going to have no idea what a mimeograph machine is like. So I had fun describing that. So the song was called I'm Here. And so I typed out all the lyrics. And one of the things when I wrote the book is explaining all these wonderful images. And I included Greer Garson among the BBC bathosphere and Mahjong and stuff like that. And I kept waiting to be called on it because that lyric didn't make it into the final song. And I think the summer after my book came out, I got a call one day from, of all people, Stephen Zondag. <laughs> and he said, Ted, I'm just looking at your book and it says that there's a Greer Garson lyric and I'm still here. What's the Greer Garson lyric? And I quoted it to him, which is, I've had it all what folks call fame. Can't quite recall what was my name. Maybe it should have been Greer but I'm here. To which Sondheim said, that's good. And I said, of course it's good. You wrote it. And then I said, you know, I've been waiting for somebody, some wag to say to me, what's the Greer Garson lyric? And he said, I guess I'm your guy. <laughs> so I just love the fact that Sondheim, while having an encyclopedic knowledge of everything in the world, he'd just forgotten that lyric. I have a feeling somebody said, Steve, what's the Greer Garson lyric? And he was like, what do you mean Greer Garson lyric? You know. Well, I'm proud to say that rereading the book a few weeks ago, I had the same reaction. I said, when did they talk about Greer Garson? <laughs> no, now you know. Now, 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 <laughs> now you can I pass know. it on. Now you can exactly. pass it on. That's so funny. Yeah. times and fun times, I've seen them all in my dear. I'm still here. Fresh velvet sometimes, sometimes just pretzels and beer. But I'm here. I've run the 
Don't go away. Ted and I will still be here with more Broadway Nation right after this quick break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com bn50 and use code bn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50, as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You know, we were talking about the typewriter and the mimeograph machine. In a way, this world of Broadway in the 1970s is almost as remote to us. And in fact, we're looking back now 50 years to then, which is the exact same time that the creators of Follies were looking back to the shows from what I call the Silver Age, those shows from the 20s and the 30s. Very good. Good image. Yeah. Well, I I always find that Golden Age, what do you call those shows that aren't the Golden Age or before that? So I made it up. Good. Uh, What things stand out as being so different from today in terms of the way shows were produced, especially Follies was produced back at that time? Well, first, the whole idea of structuring an original story around a reunion, that's one thing. I mean, I don't know how many reunions you've been to, but I try to avoid them. (laughs) Um, But if I do go, I tend to take one little item away from it rather than it bringing up a whole part of my past. When Stephen Sondheim and James Goldman went 
went to the Follies girls reunion. The actual Ziegfeld Follies. The, women who had been in the Ziegfeld Follies had reunions right. for they, decades and decades. For decades. And they went to one of those. And that's what gave them the idea. Because obviously, those women who had been in the Ziegfeld Follies many years earlier, whatever had happened to the rest of their lives, being in the Ziegfeld Follies meant a great deal to them. You know, unlike going to a high school reunion where your high school may have been great, may have been terrible, may have been probably somewhere in between. These women had a very, very specific thing in their early lives, which they wanted to touch base to and remember. So the idea, wouldn't that be cool to structure a musical around this? And then I don't know who had the idea. What about the tensions becoming so strong that somebody gets murdered? As Sondheim described, it was not going to be a who done it, but a who will do it. The Girls Upstairs was the name of that show at that time. And they tried to figure out how to do a murder mystery musical. And they just couldn't figure it out, although there were some great elements to it. And actually, there were two other projected productions, one directed by Joseph Hardy and I think produced by David Merrick, and then one produced by Stuart Ostro to be directed by John Dexter. Neither of those productions happened. And then Steve, who cared about it, when Hal Prince asked him to write Company, the bargain he made with Hal Prince was, I will do this for you if you will do The Girls Upstairs for me next. And Hal said, okay, let's get through Company and then we'll do that one next. So when Hal came into it, he added his own unique view of theatricality. The ghost figures started to become part of it. You know, wouldn't it be cool since we're in the theater that these follies took place if those young people are actually still there lurking around and as ghost figures? And then what if we were actually to create ghost versions of the lead characters? And I think somewhere along the line, the brilliant idea that if the ghosts exist in their own world, the same time that the people in the present exist, when the people in the present come to having a group nervous breakdown at the end, it can be prompted by them actually turning on themselves as younger people, breaking the time barrier and sort of having a crisis, you know, a theatrical crisis, which is solved by the Follies Drops coming in and doing all these songs that most of the audience understands are inspired by what's actually going on with those characters. Some audiences never got that, never do get that, but Sally is losing her mind, hence that song. And Buddy with the God, Why Don't You Love Me Blues is taking his little car between the two girls because he's having an affair. That's just kind of theatrically brilliant. And I think Hal, to a large extent, is responsible for having upped the theatrical ante of the piece. And then Michael Bennett was sort of right there with him to figure out how to make it theatrical, how to choreograph it. So you have both numbers done at the party, but also numbers done in the past. 
Right. And then in the brilliant stroke of who's that woman, where the numbers come together. But unlike the end, when they have a group nervous breakdown, when the women at the party are dancing with their own ghost figures, they actually never dance together. There's one circle where it's every other one, you know, ghost, mm-hmm. present, ghost, present. But they're actually doing it on their own. It's brilliant, brilliant. So let me ask you about that. I unfortunately did not get to see the original production of Folly. You're too young. You're too young. I, was, you- I saw every other production of it since okay. then. But everybody I know who did see it has told me that Who's That Woman was right. the greatest number they've ever seen on a Broadway stage. First I of all, do you, do you agree with that and why? I probably should agree with that. My only hesitation is the fact that, as you know, when you work on a show, you kind of lose perspective. It was not only brilliant, but to see how... Michael Bennett brought it about because in order for it to work, the idea of six of the women who are at the party, including all three of the above the title stars, Alexis Smith, Arthur Collins, and Yvonne DeCarlo, are three of the dancing girls. They're the backup girls. They are the backup to Mary McCarty, a secondary character who's the soloist. That woman, that cheery, weary woman who's dressing for yet one more spring. In my looking glass Lord, Lord, Lord That woman is me So they're the backup and they're doing a dance, which is fairly rigorous. I mean, I think the minute the read-through on the first day of rehearsal was over, Michael Bennett took them all in the room and started teaching them that song. It's, first of all, seeing those people doing a Michael Bennett tap dance number was pretty exciting. And he was clever enough to stage it so that they could actually do it. They may have bitched and moaned about it, but they could actually do it. And then his idea of bringing in the ghost figures, which you never quite saw them coming on. It was kind of a something to distract what's going on. And then boom, it stops. And you see the backs of six women dressed alike in black and white dancing costumes. And then the women from the party in full color in the front looking out front. And they do a tap dance that mirrors themselves. So you've heard about mirror, mirror on the wall. And then suddenly, boom, you see a tap dance that is a mirror image of each other. And then the ghosts come down and they dance around each other. <laughs> theatrically breathtaking on so many different levels. It was pretty stunning. 
pretty stunning. And how much of that was articulated at the first read-through? Was that idea fully thought through, or is that something that just evolved in the dance studio during the first couple weeks of the rehearsals? I think Michael had the whole thing in his mind. I think very carefully he didn't want to spill the beans. He didn't want the leading ladies to know they were going to be a backup chorus. Every time I see a production of Follies, I'm always amused because there's usually one of the leads who's not in it (laughs) for whatever reason. But now people know it. So it's like you got to be game to learn whatever that number is and back up a secondary character. It's, of course, much better when they're willing to do that. And I've seen many people attempt to stage it in a way that has to do with mirrors and has to do with the past and the present. But I don't think anything comes close to what Michael did originally. It was so brilliant. As I remember, they tried to recreate the original staging in the paper mill production of it, but the set was not the same. And the first time that that happened was in the London production, where they recreated it. Michael was gone by then, so Bob Avian recreated it. And I remember seeing the production and looking at it and thinking, guys, this was staged for a multi-platform set, and it's all on flat. And I thought, you know, if Michael Bennett were here, he in 10 minutes, he would have figured out how to restage it so that what was brilliant could be done on a flat stage with, if not the complete power of the original, at least more of the power than what ended up on that stage. Yeah, I saw that London production too and was eager to see that number recreated and then disappointed in the result. Talk about the Bolero, which was very controversial, and you talk about it being controversial with the creative team during the show, but it doesn't get cuts. Well, yeah, I think that the, shall we say, musical comedy folk wanted to get the plot moving along, and the Bolero, which is a perfectly honorable moment of reliving the past and those kind of ballroom dancey kind of things which were in the follies as well. There's sort of a movement of let's get this thing moving, let's get it moving but Michael adjusted it, worked very hard on it but was not about to cut it and it was a lovely moment I don't think I've ever seen a production that gives it as much gravitas as the original did but I guess you have to have the guts to say now we're actually going to do this right. you know? and of course Graziello and Michael Masita were the ghost figures you know, and Janie Turner and Don Miller with the modern day folk. And it was just the four of them. It was good. I mean, I, I liked it. And, and Steve composed it in the taxi cab over to where he realized that he said he was going to compose a theme for the dance and either forgot or whatever. So he pulled out a piece of paper in a taxi cab and wrote something out. Yeah, that's something I would love to see because it's a moment of the show I've never experienced. Yeah. And the show was long and it was performed in Broadway without an intermission. That's been an ongoing conversation about whether it should have an intermission or not. And you got to see it both ways because during most of the out-of-town run, it had an intermission. Right, and then I think after too many mornings, then they experimented around with it, the previews in New York, in, in ways you couldn't, again, talk about the differences between the theater. There was not a computer in the house. You change a cue and you're writing it and you're telling a bunch of people who have either buttons to push or machines with levers to move. Your cue is actually going to come here and then. So they could do it differently in four different performances. Today, you could never do that because it takes a lot of time to program all the computers. Well, I was staggered by four days of tech that you described, when of course today you can't do a show without two weeks at the most minimum, and four weeks and six weeks even in some giant shows. You're right, that's changed. But still, I don't think there's been a set breathtakingly, theatrically brilliant, as Boris Aronson said for Follies. It was an abstraction of a theater that's being torn down, which I think is important, because the more abstract you are, the easier it is to tell this particular story where people are lurking in a building, and you never 
quite question where they are if they're sitting on a bunch of rubble or on a staircase or dancing a little bit around upstage in the shadows. There was always, always something was going on. Are we in the present? Are we in the past? Is this a, an illusion? But it just kept moving. And the set moved in ways that people maybe weren't aware of. Platforms moving up and down on both sides in tracks that were, you know, there were men there with winches. The photos of that set don't do it justice. I didn't really appreciate it until the Hal Prince exhibit at the library in New York where the set model was there. And I just stared at that model for I don't know how long because it was so breathtaking to see it. I can only imagine what in full size it was like and the way it must have functioned. It was so theatrical. Yeah. And when I went up to talk to Lisa Aronson while I was writing the book, we had lunch at her house. Horace Aronson's wife. Right. Who lived up in Nyack, New York. And at the end, she said, oh, I have something for you. We went downstairs and into his study where there were all these cardboard boxes. And she pulled a eighth inch set model of Follies, a preliminary one. The one at Lincoln Center is a quarter inch. Yeah. And she gave it to me. And I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? with this. Anyway, I ended up giving it to the Smithsonian. I didn't know what to do with it. I was so staggered to have it, but I felt like I'd been handed something that was beyond my ability to do the right thing. Boris Aronson has such an impact on the way that show ends up on the stage. And Michael Bennett and Hal Prince are both able to tap into that and pick up on that and utilize that. Yeah. When I saw Lisa Aronson, Boris's widow, she told me a wonderful story about company because she said Boris had designed the set of company, which was a unit set that didn't move. It was on stage, a lot of chrome and glass and stuff like that. Then they hired Michael and Boris thought, oh God, a choreographer, he's going to want the set to move out of the way so he can do his dances. And she said, Michael came, looked at the set model, stared at it for a while, and then turned to Boris and said, this is going to be fun. So that's kind of Michael's brilliance. It's like, you know what? We're going to use this and I'm going to open my imagination to figure out how to choreograph this set that's clearly going to be, you know, on stage the whole night. That he's going to have to work around. He's going to have yeah, to... Yeah, and figure out the way to do it. And, yeah. and he did. He did. Well, and the good. same thing with Follies, all those levels. Another yeah. choreographer would have said, I can't make it work with all these different levels. Right. How am I going to do a dance? And yeah, he wanted that and embraced right. that. And even things like the staircase that the women come down on beautiful girls. That's off. Here they come, those beautiful girls. That's what you've been waiting for. It looks like they're walking through a pile of rubble, even though they're doing their grand entrances at the top and they're coming down. But buried in that and constructed into it was a standard-sized staircase. So the rises and the runs were like any staircase. So once the women focused on what that was, they could walk down like they were walking down any staircase. And to the audience, it looked like they're just walking through rubble. Again, brilliant, brilliantly done. But as you talk about in the book, Michael Bennett was not fully happy during the Follies process and not entirely satisfied with the result. Well, he wanted to be a director. It was very clear. I mean, he's listed as co-director, which I think was more of a negotiated credit. I guess musical staging and choreography would have been the, the more correct credit for him. But you could see that he wanted to direct and that this was something that was a stepping stone in that direction. Mm-hmm. And he also was in this what, late 20s, early 30s. And Steve and Hal Prince and James Golden were in their 40s. So there was 10 years 
difference between them. And I think I described the older folk were of the drinking generation and Michael was more of the drug generation. Mm -hmm. So there were differences in those guys. And also Michael was impatient with Jim Goldman's book. He wanted to bring Neil Simon in to get some jokes. And he was clearly operating like somebody who wanted to be in charge. And that created tension because ultimately on this project, how Prince was going to call the shots. And if anybody was going to invite Neil Simon in to write some jokes, it was not going to be Michael. It was going to be Al. Right. So Michael saw to it that that changed in his career after Follies. When some people have speculated that a chorus line was sort of his answer to Follies in a way that he was able to do a lot of the same things that they were trying to do on Follies and yet have it turn out to be an uplifting experience as opposed to a depressing experience. Clearly, both shows are about show business and they're very different. But yeah, I mean, I remember seeing Chorus Line because I knew it was Michael. I knew it was going to be interesting. So I bought like the last two tickets for to a performance, you know, and I didn't know what it was going to be. And actually, I had a girlfriend with me at the time who started sobbing about five minutes into it. And it was like, oh, my God, there is so much about Michael's personality in Chorus Line, the ability to take standard steps, but use them in such inventive ways. You don't know where you're going. And suddenly he's turned on you. He's turned in another direction. You know, and then at the end, what I will never forget is when they come out in their spangly costumes and sing one where we've just spent the entire evening making these chorus people identified as individuals. And then they're now back in the chorus. I just thought only Michael Bennett could make a political statement out of a glitzy chorus costume. Absolutely. But it was great. And Dyark Lee told me that originally he had everybody in white wigs, like blonde wigs, and they rebelled against that. And they're just like, no, Michael, Michael, when we take our hats off, they've got to see who we are. It's the curtain call, for God's sake. I've never heard that part of the story. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So looking back, who were the people that you were most drawn to that you most interacted with during your time with the Follies Company? In a way, the person that I spent the most amount of time with was actually Larry Cohen, who I talk about. He was the theater reviewer for The Hollywood Reporter at the time. And he was actually thinking of writing a book on putting a musical together. He became pals with Michael Bennett. And once he became pals with Michael Bennett, he focused there and, and said, I can't write about it because I've become a pal. And I think Michael, until the end, Michael sort of referred to Larry as his sort of intellectual pal. I know that Larry helped him with Seesaw and stuff like that. So that certainly was the case. Yvonne, because I spent more time with her at dinner and squiring her around town. You were sort um, of assigned to take care of her. as sort of assigned to take care. And I had a red convertible Volkswagen, which was very useful. When the rehearsal started up in the Bronx, that was very helpful for me to have a car to be able to drive people up there. But I also drove Sondheim and I drove Hal Prince's wife, Judy, up there a couple times. It was kind of fun. And then let's see who else. Ethel Chate. I was going to say, you seem to have a lot of interaction with Ethel Chate. Oh, she was great. She was great. And she sort of took me on as, as a pal, you know, and as a, a son. I don't know what it was. You know, I, and didn't she warn Yvonne DiCarlo about her behavior with you? Dorothy Collins. You oh, Dorothy your, Collins. Dorothy okay. Collins said, you keep your hands off that nice young man. <laughs> that was kind of sweet. But the nice young man could take care of himself. But it was still, it was fun. But then part of what was sort of typical, frankly, of the theater is that once we opened, I prepared scripts for the truncated version of the show that was going to be recorded. But otherwise, it was over. And, you know, I would come visit from time to time. But it's sort of that strange thing of living, breathing it for a couple of months and then suddenly gone, which was also fun when the opportunity came to write this book, to dive back into it and to remember experiences that I went through there and what I observed and what it became. That was a great experience. And I was able to do the book while I was running Rodgers and Hammerstein. And until I submitted the manuscript, I had 
never taken office time to do the book. I would take vacation time or I would do this. But the minute that the book got into production, things were flying back and forth like crazy. So it's like, okay, Roger and Hammerson, you have to give me a little bit of breathing room here because, you know, I got a book in production. Well, it was well worth your time to do well, that. Thank absolutely. you. I had, I had a blast doing it. And Rogers and Hammerstein should be proud that they let you off to do that. Well, Mary gave me a book party in which she had somebody make a cake that had the cover of the book on it. That was as much an indication of the kind of relationship that Mary and I had anyway, because I was her idea to run r and she was very proud. She'd call it like she saw it with me as with anybody, but ultimately she was great. Anybody who's read her book will certainly understand that she called it as she saw it. Oh, yeah. There's no two ways about that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was interesting to see her couple of little cameo appearances in your book. Right. Especially since she's so much in our minds at this particular right, moment. Right, right. And she, you know, the relationship between Mary and Steve Sondheim, which she does write extensively about in her book, Shy, I think they were in some way in love with each other. They would then fall out. When I was working at RNH, I always hated it when word got to me that they had fallen out over something because I just knew it would take time. And I knew Mary was more upset about it than she would show. And then something would pull them back together again. And then it was happier, happier times. Well, and her outspokenness, I think you mentioned in the book, She's very outspoken about follies when she comes to see it out of town and then seems to regret that later. Yeah. You know, I think what she found with Steve, as with Adam and the story about the Tony Awards and Light in the Piazza, where he turns to her before the Best Musical Award and says, Mom, I love you. And she turns back and said, it's going to be spam a lot. I mean, she just had this weird ability to say the wrong thing. Not always, but occasionally just like the dead wrong thing. And she was right. right. It was spam a lot, but still it was tricky. But I I had a great relationship with her and she she was very valuable. And when I have to say, when I read Shy, one of the surprises to me was how at the time when she was the Rogers spokesman for Rogers and Hammerstein, there were so many other things going on in her life. She sort of made us feel that we were prime in her thinking, but you read the book and it's like there was Juilliard, there was Exeter, there was the kids, there was the family, there was this, there was... And I was like, oh. And actually, I had that conversation with one of her kids who had said to me, there's not enough you in the book, Ted. And I said, oh, there's plenty of me. But I was surprised at how the r fit into her life in a more modest way than I thought. And he said, same with us. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So what's next for you, Tad? You were at Rogers and Hammerstein for how many years? 40, 40 years, 40 years. As Frank Rich said to me, the world of freelance is like buying lottery tickets. Most of them don't come through and then something comes up. There are a bunch of projects that are in various stages, a couple of productions that I hope will come to pass. I would like to write another book. I've been struggling with how to pull from my R&H days stuff that is as interesting as what the folly it'll be different because the follies book was beginning middle and end but i'm having fun and i think i'm getting somewhere where there are enough things that would be of interest to people to read about i'm ready to do that and a couple of other projects writing projects too so i'm busy what can i say well we look forward to seeing whatever it is you come up with next okay thank you so much for joining us on broadway nation my pleasure david it's a great podcast and i'm honored to be part of it thank you waiting around for the girls upstairs Weren't we chuckleheads then? Very young and very old hat. Everybody has to go through stages like that. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Back there when one of the major events was waiting for the girls, waiting for the girls, waiting for the girls. Upstairs.
Now here's the information about how you too can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for Broadway Nation. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech that's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. Or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.